Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sachs's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher. I'm an associate professor at Clemson University, and I'm also the host for this program. Today, I am pleased and excited to have Dr. Travis Smith, a faculty member at the University of Florida, as our guest. Travis, thanks so much for giving your time to our conversation today. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Awesome. Absolutely. Um, so before we get started um, into work and career and all of that, would you be willing to share a little bit about yourself in terms of hobbies, things that you're reading, watching, listening to? What's, what's Travis outside of professor? Wow. Um, that's a great question. Um, Travis outside of being a professor uh, right now is trying to be a really supportive husband, uh, a father to Micah and his uh, one-year-old attitude at the moment. Uh, I'm trying to per perfect my golf game. I'm getting better. My goal is to get into the 80s um, this year. So I finally be became maybe an unofficial bogey golfer. <laughs> so um, the good thing about being in Florida, there are a lot of courses. And so I'm constantly on the course. That's kind of like my relaxation. So between grilling, between uh, golfing, I've just picked back up some books for leisure. It's extremely difficult right now for me to read for leisure because I'm teaching so many classes and having to read for content that I'm literally, I don't know what, we need to come up with a word for it, like reading exhaustion or something. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but yeah, I, I, my goal is to dive into uh, one book, Black Against the Empire, and it's the history and the politics of the Black Panther movement. Um, and so that's one of the books that I hope to just crack open before August. Awesome. Thank you very much. How about um, your journey kind of into your role right now professionally? What's, what's that look like for you? Really untraditional. Really me being a hard head. Uh, um, so I started... Really, I started as an HA president at Alabama State University, HBCU in Montgomery. Um, and that's really where, where I found it, fell in love with higher education. And so I was suffering from imposter syndrome my senior year, but I didn't know it was named imposter syndrome. I just knew that I felt like I wasn't smart enough to go get a PhD. Um, and so from there, I kind of ran from my calling to go into higher ed. Um, and I tried to do everything but going to education. So I, <laughs> I went to a school, um, started off as a, as a doctor chiropractic program. That didn't work out, of course, because I, my, my heart wasn't in it. I ended up getting a master's in sports science. Uh, my undergrad was biology, so that, I guess that's worth noting. I love sports. I love science. My goal was to be a physical therapist and maybe like a dean of a physical therapy program and then become a, uh, a university president. All of this, I made a whole plan of how to become a university president without getting a PhD. Um, and then one day I was just reading a book, uh, The Miseducation of the Negro. And I just decided at that point, it's like a light bulb went off, aha moment. I remember it vividly sitting on my bed, like education is it. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, and so now how do I go back and rectify all the bad career choices I've made to get back on track to education? And so things really started aligning. I went I graduated that program. I used that degree and my science degree to teach high school, which probably was one of the best decisions I ever made because it really allowed me to understand freshmen, which I call high school seniors two months removed. <laughs> uh, and, and so it really kind of helped me 
uh, with working with pre-collegiate programs at Clemson, as well as just understanding the freshman experience because I was a high school senior teacher. And so I understood kind of, you know, the ways they thought, the things that they did, why they did that. Um, and it really gave me a perspective on how close higher ed and K-12 is connected and how we really try to divorce it and we really can't. And so I think we have to do more work on that. Long story short, uh, I left teaching to get the PhD at Clemson um, and had a, a pretty great experience in regards to the program there at Clemson and the experiences. Um, and I ended up here at the University of Florida once I graduated as a clinical professor. Somebody uh, decided to give me a shot. <laughs> That's awesome. So a quick follow-up on that. Do you have any advice for other people who might be dealing with that sort of imposter phenomenon and, you know, just the PhD is not something I can do? You talked about your own experience. What would you say to maybe a student who comes to you and is like, I just don't think I have what it takes? The first thing I would say is why. Uh, why, why don't you have what it takes? Um, the second thing I will ask is, why are you pursuing it? Like, what's the end goal? Because uh, I've worked with a lot of students now who have been on the borderline to get a PhD. And once we kind of get down to the nitty gritty, I tell students, if you're researching something you're passionate about, it makes the program that much easier, that much smoother. You, you enjoy reading, you enjoy writing. Um, and then I end the conversation, if needed, just do it. Like the Nike slogan, you just, sometimes you just got to do it. Um, and I'm a big proponent. You miss hundred percent of the shots you don't take. And so if you're not shooting the ball, you, you got a 0% chance of scoring. And so sometimes you just gotta, you just gotta do it. I wish I had like a, a magic pill, mm-hmm. but honestly, in two, what, 2014, I decided I was just going to do it. And, and if people tell me, no, they just tell me, no. Mm-hmm. Very good. All right. Um, Oh, okay. One last question before we get to sort of our topic of the day. We talk a lot about how higher ed and student affairs is, you know, it's a really small network, a small community. And one of the things that I've been trying to ask every guest is if they would highlight a person or some people who really have been instrumental for them, because the chances are good at some point someone's going to listen to this. You're going to say a name or some names and they're going to be like, oh, I know that person from this. So could you talk a little bit about um, sort of some key players in your experience to get you where you are? Wow, that's an that's a list. That is a it's kind of like watching a cartoon and they drop the scroll and the scroll just keeps going. Uh, it's really been a community approach. I would probably say like in this particular moment in time, if I had to name two people specifically at Clemson, I would name Max Allen. Um, I would also name Natasha Kroon. And for various, you know, different reasons, Max was really, first of all, Max is a brilliant guy and he really understands higher education. And because he has a background in crisis management, like nothing phases him. And he really taught me how to be analytical. He really taught me how to ask critical questions. He really taught me how to advocate in different strategies to advocate. And like he is, he's probably one of the most strategic higher ed professionals I've ever met in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and every little detail matters to Max, every detail. And so just being detail oriented, which I am not, but he really pushed me to that. Um, and then I think too, from a faculty lens, as I reflect on my first year as a faculty member, 
having an opportunity to, to TA directly with Dr. Kroon my uh, last year at Clemson was really phenomenal because I was able to watch her and, and watch her from a distance and watch her up close from creating the syllabus to being intentional about uh, what goes into into the syllabus, what does not go into the syllabus, how when students challenge you, because, you know, she's a critical scholar and she's coming from an anti-oppression lens, how do you address it? How do you navigate, you know, different tomfoolery um, in the academy? And like Dr. Kroon, like if I had to do like an analogy, it'd be like, she's like an ice skater. And no matter what comes her way while she's on the ice, she just so brilliantly navigates it without losing any direction for spins or, and so she's really, poised in her approach and she's really strategic but she never wavers on her anti-oppression approach inside the classroom and so that really kind of gave me the motivation that I could like I uh ascribe to be that type of professor that still can be loving that still can be supportive while also never wavering on the fact that I'm coming from an anti-oppression lens and so working with her um was really beneficial. And so those two people really helped me in two different aspects, especially now that I'm a, you know, a professor um, here in the swamp. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, and, and for sharing a little bit about yourself, just in a general sense too, I appreciate it. So your experience um, and uh, expertise with HBCUs makes you a great resource, I'm sure, for your students. And I'm excited for our listeners to get um, some benefit from that as well through our conversation. Would you mind just starting a little bit and, and talking about your own experience um, with research on and support of historically Black colleges and universities? Yeah, I, uh, I kind of preferences, preference it um, from the lens of, I don't consider it research, I consider it me-search because HBCUs are <clears throat> a pivotal part of who I am as an individual, particularly as a Black man. Um, and so just thinking about the ways in which my HBCU has um, propelled me in life, has developed me, has nurtured me and supported me, and then how other HBCUs have also poured into me uh, Rather, that was directly or indirectly. And so to me, it's more so of me search. Like I'm like with my dissertation, looking at the experiences of Black SGA presidents at HBCUs, th that was something I needed to do for myself. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it, it um, unfortunately, it took what, six, eight years for me to actually sit down and process my experience. But my dissertation allowed me to do that. And so now the beauty of, what I see as art, honestly, more so as research, is being able to help people tell their stories, help people, you know, put into words, uh, visualize the true impact of HBCUs. Um, and so when I think about my research with HBCUs, I really think of it as being able to put these institutions on a platform, a national, international platform, to where the stories can be told beyond just the civil rights movement, beyond just, you know, this deficit lens of their, cre their creation because Black people didn't have access to X, Y, and Z. No, so well, it's 2021, right? The history matters, but there's so, there's so much more to be told 
versus saying HBCUs lack and HBCUs this. And so how do we tell the other stories? Oh, while still telling, right, those those narratives, because it's not an either or, but a both end conversation. And so when it comes to that, I really see it as an intimate place of an intimate perspective of me, like I'm a part of it. Uh, and so that that's kind of how I approach the work with HBCUs. Great. So um, actually, a friend of mine recommended a couple of episodes from the most recent season of Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History. And he talks about U.S. News and World Report rankings um, in one episode. And then the next episode, he gives sort of a general overview of how the college rankings relate to specifically Dillard University in New Orleans. Um, he talks about how the ranking system rewards privilege and significantly penalizes HBCUs specifically. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to the episode, but I just wonder, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts about the role of HBCUs in our culture. And again, to your point, um, the, the contribution, the opportunity, rather than the comparative, you know, sort of place where we go and where obviously U.S. News and World Report goes. So kind of just rambled through that, but, but <laughs> a little bit about your thoughts on um, the role of those institutions and, and the unique purpose that they serve. Yeah, no, no, thank you for that question. Uh, the episode was amazing. <clears throat> and I think for the HBCU community in listening to the episode, nothing that they said was was new, was shocking. We've been preaching that for decades. Um, I think uniquely this episode, uh, when they actually now have proof and how they recreated the algorithm uh, and factored in all of these different things, it, it it brings a different light on it uh, from a scientific standpoint. But to the question of you know, the role of HBCUs in, in their culture, I think of HBCUs as the, when it comes to education for black and brown communities specifically, I think of them as a pivotal part of DNA. So here's the science in me. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and so how you have these different bases of DNA and from DNA, everything is created that the body needs. Um, and so I, I really look at HBCUs as a pivotal uh, institution, as a pivotal piece um, to what uh, the Black community um, and, and some Brown communities really, really need. I mean, if you think about growing up, uh, and I'm just going to speak now just from my experience as a Black person, I spent 12 years in the high school setting, a K-12 setting, and I get one month a year uh, to focus on the same pieces of history that resonate with me. Nothing prior to being a slave, everything starts with me being a slave. And so now I'm mentally conditioned uh, that I'm less than, right? And so now thinking about, even though you get one month, that's equivalent to one year out of 12. Uh, and what HBCUs do for Black people uh, and black students is for, for the first time in a lot of students' lives, 
they're surrounded by black excellence. Like being black is the norm. Being black is okay in all of the facets, in all of the shades. Not, not that this is what black is defined as, but there's a spectrum of blackness. And, and we joke about it all the time. I recall being at Alabama State where we had black people that had Benz and BMWs and black people like myself that had a 1980s car. Black people that had, you know, that were doing Pokemon before Pokemon became exciting. So in the union, you literally could see Pokemon cards. You can hear the dominoes on a table. You can hear spades. You can ping pong. I've never in my life seen Black people play ping pong until I got to Alabama State at that level, at that competitive level. And so the spectrum of Blackness was so amazing. Um, And I'm from Alabama, right? And so thinking of my, my scope was already limited, but meeting Black people from D.C., from Detroit, from Chicago, from Florida, from California, um, and then not even, that's just from the Americanized lens. I haven't even started to express the international aspect of Blackness, especially from the continent of Africa, or one of my closest friends right now is, is Black British, um, and so he's from London, um, and then the Caribbeans, and so for the first time, it's really like a utopia. Uh, of blackness and so just think it's kind of like phases I I went through um, in regards to my experience but what does that do for 17 I was 17 when I got to Alabama State so 17 18 year olds who all of their life they've been shown this image of blackness and taught this dynamic of blackness right from being enslaved and then you get to a campus to where blackness is finally celebrated and not tolerated and then you learn the history of the campus, but then you also learn the the African diaspora roots and you start learning things, but you, you learn like the term enslaved versus slave. And that means so much, right? And so I think that's one of the pivotal pieces that HBCUs do for our community. And so now you're graduating students that are not only equipped to compete with anybody or equipped to do any job, uh, but they are also equipped with self, uh, self-confidence and self-worth that, you know, my whole life I was told, and, you know, through my school system that I wasn't a great writer. I, uh, you know, I went to an bl- all-Black school where we were always compared, and we were a county school, always compared to the white school on the other side of the county. And so they were always compare our test scores and, and you were always told that you were less than. We received less than books. Our test scores are always less than. So you kind of, you adopt that mentality. And then when I got to Alabama State, it was like, oh, let's deprogram you from all of that and show you that you're truly valuable, that you're truly worth. All you needed was somebody to invest in you and see you for who you are and not for what, what, your, lack, what your environment has done to you. And so I think that, in a nutshell, um, is comprehensively what HBCUs do for not only just our our students, but the community, because now these students graduate and they become community leaders, they become grassroots organizers, they become educators. We know, research has shown us what HBCU students who go back into the classroom, what they do for those students and the impacts. Uh, And there was actually a study, I think Dr. Hans was looking at from the University of South Carolina, um, and they were doing a similar study on um, students who graduated from HBCUs that are now teaching in the K-12 sector and how their philosophy is vastly different um, in the outcomes. They're seeing higher outcomes with their student learnings. But that's just kind of like a snippet, I suppose. So as I'm listening to you, it, it's it's not about simply 
getting a credential and moving on. It is a holistic, all-encompassing, highly personal experience. When you think about leaders of these organizations, there's a different level and type of responsibility um, and accountability. One of the things in the podcast episode that really struck me was when the president of Dillard said, well, you know, I was meeting with a student the other day and you don't always hear that at every institution. So what, what are some special, um, whether it's skill, experience, areas of focus, what do you think is really are some foundational and some things you can't compromise on when you're talking about people leading HBCUs? Well, I think one thing that <clears throat> uh, personally, and I've heard uh, from, from other you know, friends and colleagues and alum, this idea of radical love. Mm. And so when, when, when you're listening to the, the, the podcast and Dr. President Kimbrough is discussing like his relationship with students, how he views students is in a form of radical love. Like he takes on this father, uncle, you know, this nurturing component. And it's not, he doesn't see himself from listening to him talk on, on several occasions. He doesn't see himself as I'm the president, you're the student. It's more so like we're in this together. I'm here for your well-being. And so, yeah, I, I just, I think radical love is one of the biggest things that HBCUs do. Uh, in regards to like their leaders on campus is for, for, for the most part, I would say they see you and they see you as their own children. Now there could be some, some pieces that we have to address about that, but in this, in this purity form, I, I wouldn't treat you, Michelle, if you were a student, I wouldn't treat you any different truly than I would treat my own child. And so that means while you're in my office, if you need a snack, I got you. If you need me to give you some tough love and say, you know, relationship advice. Like these are the conversations I recall having with my advisors, uh, you know, not even my advisors, just people that I was close with that were administrators. Uh, and, and I mean, imagine going to like a VP of student affairs or a dean of students for relationship advice, right? But these are the conversations we felt comfortable having. So when we talk about holistic development, I think there's truly a holistic piece to what leaders uh, what leaders do. And so I, to answer your question, we can never compromise on radical love. Um, and we can, I think as HBCUs, as much as resources matter, right? Uh, but I think there are some things that we just can't hang our hats on. And I, I would hate the day that we start to do it in regards to like, they, they refer to like selectivity and admissions criteria. That's just not our role. That's not who we are in our DNA. Um, and I think th that's one of those things that we can't we can't waver on. Like op HBCUs, when I think of HBCUs, I think of opportunity. When you look at the statistics of the type of student in regards to the financial, socioeconomic status, in regards to the intersectional intersectionality of different marginalized identities that the students that come to to these institutions, I don't know if any other institutions will be able to support and nurture these students like we do. We have perfected that. Um, and it's kind of like me saying, hey, Dr. Awesome, um, I want you to make lemonade, but I'm not going to give you lemons. I'm not going to give you sugar. And I'm not going to give you water, but I expect you to have lemonade. 
And that's really what we've been doing for HBCUs for over 150 years. And but it's the best lemonade I've ever tasted. And I can't tell you, right? I don't know if uh, into and Dr. Kimbrough kind of alluded to this. I don't know if institutions, other institution types will be it with the resources that HBCUs have and the expectation um, and the quote unquote accountability that governments are placing on, on these institutions. I don't know if you put any other institution type and give them the exact same model. It's, I don't know if they could do that. I don't know if they could still produce. I mean, even looking at the retention rate that he discussed and how low the retention rates are, but we know retention doesn't tell, like the, the number doesn't tell the whole story. And so I will be really interested in seeing studies to where if we're going to compare, we got we to gotta compare comparable variables. We can't just compare institution to institution. We got to compare, okay, these are the model. This is the model student that we're comparing and then compare it across institutions. Uh, but then again, when a, one institution has millions, multi-millions more than another institution, then again, you're still at a disadvantage. So there's so many different factors. So when I hear people talk about the low retention rate, uh, to me, that just says you've never stepped foot on the HBCU campus. You have no idea what you're speaking of. Um, and so, yeah, I know that was spitballing, but yeah, those are my thoughts in regards to uh, the leadership piece um, in regards to things we can't, I never want to see us waver on being institutions that provide opportunities for students who might have been victims of public education for 12 years. Like we shouldn't punish students who have been, and, and that truly, they truly have been victims. They've been failed by our public education system. So is it right for us to punish them and not give them access or not give them a chance or opportunity uh, to, to truly change generational wealth for, for future generations? So what are, and, and you've alluded to this, you've mentioned some things already. A lot of people who are going to listen to this aren't um, alums of HBCUs, probably are never going to work at an HBCU. What do you wish all of us working in higher ed knew and considered when we were thinking about HBCUs? Wow. I would probably say the first thing is you have to go beyond the literature when, 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 when trying to understand HBCUs. It's one of those things where, and I can tell when I read about HBCUs, I can tell if people who are writing have truly experienced HBCUs and not necessarily being an alum, but ex experienced the, the culture some, uh, and actually invested the time kind of from an ethnographic standpoint of immersing themselves in a culture. And so I would say before you speak on the institution type, really spend time understanding, like speaking to the students, speaking to the faculty, the staff, speaking to alumni, and then spending time on campus. I'm not talking about homecoming, right? That's, that's one, homecoming is like 3% of the HBCU experience. I'm talking about, you know, understanding how staff members uh, are getting paid for one job, but they're in, in reality, they're, they're doing 10. Um, understanding, you know, the backgrounds of students and what students are being faced with. I mean, one example, Dr. Kimbrough said in the, the podcast, which is real, because I had friends like this, when he, he said the student just didn't know where they were going to go. I've had friends crash with me <laughs> um, over the breaks because 
didn't have no nowhere to go. And 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 that's why summer people don't understand for for some students, summer school is life changing because they have guaranteed housing in the summer. And so it's not necessarily about taking credit hours or trying to graduate early. They have nowhere else to go. They don't have summer jobs, summer income. And so I think really just taking the time to understand the culture um, and, and understanding the true history and struggles, not from bad decision-making per se, but from a system where these institutions were created and never designed to um, never designed to, to be successful. Um, and so you think about most of these institutions just starting as normal schools. Who would have thought a normal school would be a hundred years later a university? And if you think about other institution types, they started as colleges, they started as universities. And so HBCUs have always had to fight uh, for the chance to just be considered as equal. And so, you know, even if you look at the media coverage, it, everything is always HBCU fault. But then once we actually kind of pull the onion back and look at the different layers, like right now, the state of Tennessee has mistakenly not given Tennessee State over $600 million. How do you mistakenly not give an institution their appropriate? Um, and so just imagine if one, one um, congressman or legislature person uh, didn't ask that question. And so what other institutions that are not HBCUs are just mistakenly not getting money that they are all about to say. And so it's, it's those type of things that we really got to kind of, you know, take a, take a deeper look at. Like when you look at the buildings and you say, oh, this campus is old. Well, have you asked the question why this building hasn't been updated? Why, you know, they have so much deferred uh, maintenance. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's just really, some things you just can't take at face value. And I would say, don't judge a book by its cover. Well, I, I appreciate, I'm going to transition just a little bit, but of course you take us where you want us to go. We can revisit this. Um, but the depiction of HBCUs in the news recently, um, there are additional conversations that are happening. And I really wanted to have this first part of the conversation to get at a little bit of, um, I mean, just the reality of people talking about things they don't really know about. Um, so with the tenure issues at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and Dr. Nicole Hannah-Jones' decision to decline their belated offer, which that could be a whole podcast series in itself, um, and instead, so she's going to be teaching at Howard University, and I know Ta-Nehisi Coates is also joining her in the faculty there. And then um, more recently, Cornell West, I think this was just within the last few weeks. So for listeners, we're, we're recording this at the end of July. Um, but with his, and it was, it was pretty publicly circulated, his letter of resignation um, to Harvard. So there is this sort of, um, public response to PWIs and, you know, what mm, sort of this notion of if you get that opportunity, you should just be grateful for it, you know? And so I'm really interested given those events and 
the fact that, you know, you, you talked about this when you talked about normal schools versus PWIs that started as colleges and universities, our educational, our higher education system in particular was built by white men for white men. So how do you think some of these recent events, and again, the very public nature of what's happened, because I'll be honest with you, I cannot think in my lifetime of another tenure discussion that became a national issue and part of the, the cultural dialogue. So how do you think these things potentially are going to affect um, perceptions of higher education in general, but especially comp uh, further complicate the differences and potential tensions between very high profile PWIs and HBCUs. So again, there's kind of a lot crammed into that I don't know, 27 question. <laughs> Just what, what are your thoughts and reactions to what's going on right now? Uh, so, I, you know, I have a lot of emotions regarding it. Uh, the first emotion, my first tendency is to celebrate. Like I really celebrate uh, Dr. Jones and, and Coates for, for going to um, Howard. Like that's a win. And as we typically say, um, in our kind of like our HBCU circles, we're going to talk about each other and dog and, and kind of like in the family and HBCU family. But when we, when we leave this house, we all root for everybody. Like one HBCU win, we all win. Um, and so I'm super excited of just the national, like we're, we're talking about on the podcast, the national recognition of what I think Dr. I think this is the beginning of what Dr. Jones and, and Colts have planned, honestly. Uh, and, and I think it's brilliant also because if you look really into that case, they make a case for uh, working with other HBCUs with their centers. And so they're going to bring other HBCUs on. Um, not even that, thinking about uh, Dr. Cornell West in a recent interview, he talked about, he actually named Alabama State, Morgan State, and Morehouse as potential HBCUs that he would be welcome, like he would welcome the opportunity um, to teach at. Um, and then also, I think from an athletic standpoint, look at what Deion Sanders is doing at Jackson State, the notoriety, the, the money that he's bringing to that program. Not only is he helping that program, but he also just put out a call earlier this week to help out Mississippi Valley State uh, in Mississippi to get them better uh, practice facilities and equipment. And so I say that to say like this, this fame, uh, I celebrate it because it's really showing a different light. Um, and, and, you know, besides Colts, none of these folks were actually HBCU folks. And so they kind of got into the culture and now they're seeing the inside and seeing um, what, we, what we truly need. Now, that's the celebration piece. I also, as a critical scholar, hurt because as I celebrate, I also have to acknowledge anti-Blackness. And as a Black scholar, as a Black professor, it's always in my mind that we are trained in these doctoral programs to go work for top institutions. And not once do we have a conversation or not once do we, not once are we kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? A mentor or is promoted to go work at HBCUs. It's always go work at, you know, a predominant institution, a predominant white institution that has uh, a, a quote unquote brand name. You know, if you can land at an Ivy League, you've made it. 
And so it's kind of, you know, anti-Blackness happens within the Black community and it happens within all communities. And so thinking of, as I celebrate Dr. Jones, my question would be, and I don't know, and so I, I, I throw this assumption out, could you have, did you consider Howard before being, having tenure delayed, right? And I don't know that and I can't answer that for her. Uh, but there's a lot that go on that goes on right there and this is i'm oversimplifying a really complex issue what i would say is we're moving in the right directions but i also want us to start moving in a direction that we consider hbcus first mm-hmm. they're not a backup plan they're not a when things don't happen the way i want now i'm slapped in the face and i'm gonna go running back to hbcus why could we not have given them the chance first um, and so that's kind of like the bittersweet side of me as a, you know, as an HBCU alum and as somebody who, who's, who I'm a diehard HBCU advocate, were they not enough? Like, did somebody have to tell you no for you to recognize the worth? It's kind of like taking things for granted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, optimistically, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely excited. Like, I love what Dion is doing. I love what Dr. Jones has already done, her and Colts and bringing that money. Um, and, and so if like, if you read into the different stories, it talks about how she went out, um, to, to the fellowship folks and some other donors and said, Hey, can, can we just start this here? Could that have happened on the front end? Like, could you still have had access to that money on the front end? Um, and so how do we, how do we kind of use the leverage for other prominent black professors, black academians, black business folks to say, Hey, let's give our HBCUs a chance. Like don't allow them to be second class citizens and then don't just give money because it's the cool thing to do. Like we've, we've seen that over the last two years. Like people want to now just give money to HBCUs or, or do one-off activations with HBCUs just to say we've done something in that space. Okay, and then what happens when it's not cool to do that again? Like we go back to really reality. Um, and so, yeah, th- those are kind of like my thoughts. But I, I, I really think as higher ed, um, we need to move beyond higher ed and then HBCUs. Like HBCUs are a part of higher education and a pivotal part of that as well. So as you look to the future, you know, and informed not just by that set of current events that we've been talking about, but certainly the pandemic, other issues, do you have any predictions? Do you have any, um, I know you have hopes and dreams for HBCUs. Are there things that you're anticipating? This is what I think is is in store. Yeah, I do anticipate pro- at least for the next five years, enrollment is going to continue to increase uh, at HBCUs. Uh, <clears throat> I do also anticipate funding um, continuing to rise at HBCUs just off of release mo- relief money. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking, paying attention to the infrastructure bill um, that has some technology implications for um, our minority serving institutions, which HBCUs are a part of that. The issue that I do have with that is we lump HBCUs into my, and tri- we lump HBCUs and tribal colleges into minority serving institutions, whereas you could be a predominantly large, predominantly you know, white institution receiving and have a billion dollar. Um, endowment and be classified as a Hispanic serving institution actually not serving Hispanic students in the Hispanic population that's a whole nother conversation of how like we really need to revamp 
who's considered a Hispanic serving institution and hold them accountable to actually serving those students and supporting those students there versus just receiving funds and not doing the work. But anywho, uh, there are some implications that there are some, you know, infrastructure money potentially that can help update facilities, update technology. Um, and I think that's really going to help HBCUs, particularly with technology. And I say that because COVID exposed everybody with technology. And so if you think about your large institutions and their technology deficits, multiply that time 50 and you will have HBCUs strictly from a financial standpoint. And so if the government <clears throat> in regards to funding is saying we want to invest in technology and we're going to invest in it across the board, then I think for HBCUs, that's a win. Um, in in regarding, you know, fiber technology and, and all of those things. And so I really predict over the next five years, a continuation of uh, enrollment and a continuation of campus um, improvement plans in regards to facilities and infrastructure. I want to loop back to, you said a few minutes ago, you were talking about in doctoral programs, we sort of um, talk a lot about setting people up to go to R1 institutions. How would you like to see HBCUs represented in the curriculum, whether it's student affairs, whether it's higher ed, master's, doctoral? Um, because to be honest with you, I don't know that I've done much to, other than current events kinds of things, I don't know that I've embedded it in the history and the conversations. So where would you like to see, and it, and maybe beyond just higher ed and student affairs, but from a, an educator standpoint, where would you like to see conversation and exploration showing up about HBCUs? Oh, that's a really great question. I think the very, the first thing we have to do is address recruitment and who we're recruiting. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you think of basically the uniform recruiting that we're doing, we're getting the same student, the same student that wants to go to work for the same type of institution. And so now we're automatically seeing a gap of student affairs professionals and higher ed scholars who want to go work at HBCUs. And so, you know, at what point do we start to reach out? And this is something I'm proud of that we're doing here at the University of Florida is we're doing some intentional HBCU recruitment um, and we're making it so that, hey, we're recruiting you to come to this program, gain these skills, but go back to your institutions and work. Um, and so that's number one. I think number two is we have to have larger conversations and content outside of diversity courses. And so right now you look at the, the only time for the most part, I'm generalized not that we're discussing HBCUs is in diversity class and it might be a subunit. And so how do we incorporate that into all of the courses? Um, and so in other courses, we incorporate liberal arts colleges. We incorporate a different type, but we're not incorporating tribal colleges, we're not incorporating HBCU, you know, HBCUs. And so how do we be intentional in incorporating into assessment, incorporating into, you know, the variety of how functional areas might look at different institution types um, in regards to counseling, the counseling courses, how counseling might look different um, at an HBCU, at a tribal college, right? How do we embed, you know, they're really culturally based. Um, and so just thinking of throughout the curriculum, why, why, how do we incorporate more content um, for, <clears throat> for these institutions? I mean, another course, governance. 
right? Can we bring in some HBCU case studies? Can we bring, right? So there is, if there are ways to do it, you just really have to be intentional about doing it. And then don't just do it from a deficit lens, right? From a narrative of we're going to bring this case study because this was a, you know, for an example, we love to, to bring up the FAMU band hazing case study in all student affairs program. So we'll bring up the negative aspect of HBCUs, but we won't talk about any other case studies. Um, how about we talk about how HBCUs responded to COVID and how other institutions were, were literally learning from that response and the things they did on campus to save students' lives and to support students during that time. Like that would be a great case study. Um, and so, yeah, I would just like to see it overall and then in career discussions. Everybody doesn't want to work at an R1. And so we really got to get away from programming students to graduate and feel the need to work at an R1 in order to be successful. That is not everyone's goal. And so, you know, I, I literally had someone tell me uh, in my doc program, they were asking me about my goals and they said, and I said, my goal is to go back and work at HBCU. And their quote verbatim response was, why would you settle? And, and, and so like, I'm looking at this individual as a mentor. I'm looking at this individual as someone that I trust in regards to giving me you know, professional advice. Uh, but I would be lying if I say psychologically that didn't mess with me. As a first year dog student trying to navigate this all white space and you're questioning like, am I, am I really settling? because I want to go back and work at HBC, right? And so it, it took me time to kind of process and get out their mind, but that's a lot of folks' mindset of you're settling um, if you work at that those type of institutions. And so we just got to do a better job at uh, telling the story. But here's the kicker. People can't tell what they don't know. And so we can't expect faculty members um, to teach what they're not immersed in. Um, and so this is a perfect opportunity for strategic partnerships or to just hire more, you know, maybe critical scholars and more HBCU scholars to actually be into these programs. Um, because I would challenge any, any person that has a master's program, that has a doc program, I would challenge you to look at the profiles of your faculty and to see what institutions have they worked at, what institutions did they get their degree at, and what are they teaching. And you'll see a lot of commonalities across the board. And then we wonder why we're producing the same type of student because there is no diversity within the faculty ranks. And I'm not just talking about race and gender. I'm also talking about experience, institutional type diversity, all of that matters. And so those would probably be my recommendations. Do you have anything for people who want to learn more and become more um, knowledgeable about HBCUs? Are there resources you would recommend? I mean, obviously, you talked about immersing yourself and really learning the culture as part of the culture, but are there other, other opportunities or resources you would recommend? Yeah, I, I think for student affairs, there's a uh, conference, uh, NASAP, N-A-S-A-P, and that's kind of like the HBCU Student Affairs Conference. And so that's a great way to, you know, just start networking with VPs and deans of students and student affairs folks at HBCUs. To, to just learn more and build connections. Cause I think it's one thing about HBCUs, it's all about relationships yeah. and the relationships come first. And so you have to build those relationships. I would say, say start there. I will also, you know, NASPA has, I think some HBCU uh, works is along with ACPA. And so how do you join those uh, institutes? Shameless plug, 
uh, there might be an ACPA HBCU Institute. And so that would be a great way to kind of in this next conference kind of get uh, exposed. Um, and then too, there are a lot of different leadership, HBCU leadership programs. I know HELF, H-E-L-F is one leadership uh, program um, that you can kind of go and spend a week and, and with other HBCU um, stakeholders and advocates and kind of get immersed. And then Clark Atlanta University has another program that they just launched in regards to leadership. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think those would be my go-to recommendations. I, I think the low-hanging fruit would be, okay, if you're currently at an institution and not, that's not an HBCU and you're in proximity you know, uh, to HBCUs, let's say an hour and 30 minutes, two hours, what strategic partnerships can you all do? Uh, maybe student exchanges, faculty exchanges, staff exchanges, to where you, both, both parties are benefiting. And so I think we also had to get away from, we call it partnerships, but then the HBC, all you want is the HBCU students for your diversity grants or the faculty to be on the grant, but they're not getting any other money. No, it has to be mutually beneficial. And so I look at institutions that have all of these resources. How can you partner with HBCUs to maybe give them access to your research databases, right? To give their faculty access to lab uh, space or, or things like that. Like those are great par strategic partnerships. And then stop asking these HBCUs folks or faculty and students to come to your campus. When was the last time you actually went to their campus and set up lab or did some guest lecturing or did some strategic partnerships, especially when it comes to student activities and programming? Um, and I think another low-hanging fruit is, and they're already kind of partnered, the NPHC. And so your fraternity and sorority life, because they have chapters across, you know, PWIs and HBCUs. And so how do we leverage those partnerships uh, maybe for co-program? And I know when I was HGA president, uh, we did some student government co-programming across the state where it was Alabama State, Auburn University, Montgomery, Tuskegee University, Auburn University, and Auburn, and then Troy University, and we all kind of held um, educational forums on each other campuses, um, kind of like panels uh, regarding the differences and the experiences and, and how do we work together um, to support our, each other's students. And so that was a really uh, beneficial opportunity that we did. And so that was exciting, but more of that can happen. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's just kind of like a brain dump. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. Are there any projects or any of your own work that you want to kind of share? I, I heard the teaser about a possible institute. Um, are there other things that you're doing that, you know, might not be fully developed as a resource, but hey, this is the work and how I'm engaging in it? Oh, yeah, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> so I got a couple pieces coming out. Uh, I think we have an about campus piece coming out about appreciative advising and HBCUs. We have a book chapter coming out about Black women, SGA student leaders. Um, there's another piece I'm working on in regards to mental health and our Black student leaders at HBCUs. Um, and then there's a commentary piece that should be coming out in November regarding a response to kind of like a case study and our response to what we would, what we would see. Uh, oh, Jeez. And there's a book chapter coming out about Black men, SGA presidents, and what they gain. So there's a, a lot of writings. Awesome. <laughs> I think uh, my nonprofit, United Incorporate, Incorporated, we just finished our three-day virtual HBCU uh, 
conference to where we had 1,102 students registered from 66 different HBCUs. And so we're about to um, kick off our year-long program. And our goal is just to connect high school students to HBCUs and HBCU students to opportunities. And so we're working with different corporations, um, some different sectors of the government to, um, number one, train them in regards to recruiting and retaining HBCU talent uh, while also exposing our HBCU students to opportunities. Um, and so we're working with a lot of organizations to help them fill internships, to help them fill jobs. And we're training our HBCU students um, to go into those sectors as well. And so, yeah, I mean, the nonprofit uh, is really taking off um, and, and we're celebrating 10 years. So wow. we're about to roll out our, our 10 year anniversary campaign. So that's exciting. Like all things HBCUs, I suppose. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. Um, kind of before I go to wrap up, is there anything else you want to mention, talk about? Is there something I should have asked you that I didn't? No, uh, this has been therapeutic for me. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this once I received the questions. And so thank you for allowing me the space um, to really get this story out some more. I know there are a lot of other people that are doing some great HBCU work. Um, and, you know, I commend you from afar. I see the citations coming. I have my Google Scholar alerts um, <laughs> set up. <laughs> and to all my people that are currently working at HBCUs, just know that you're seen and that your work um, doesn't go unnoticed. Like you're literally changing lives. And so if no one else tells you, I'm telling you right now, thank you for the sacrifice. Thank you for the dedication and the commitment. And just know, you know, whenever the work gets burdensome, and you get weary, just know, you know, there's a greater calling. You might not see it, but you're changing generations to come. And so I just, you know, I praise you for that. And thank you. All right. Well, thank you one more time, Travis. I really, um, I, like you, I was looking forward to this just to, you know, talk to you for a little bit, but I always enjoy learning from you and with you. And um, I know that things are busy. And the fact that you were able to make some time, I'm grateful to you for that. Um, before I, I do kind of the outro and wrap up, what, what in your world is giving you hope right now? Wow. What is giving me hope? I can definitely tell you my tank is filled uh, from the HBCU conference we just did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to be driving off of that for a minute, but just to see the students' excitement and to, to know that students are, are still passionate about being world changers, um, especially within the Black community, like being surrounded uh, with that many Black students and just hearing their passions and being able to work alongside of them, knowing that they're going to go back to their HBCU campus and really invest in you know, programming for students, to policy changes for students, and just making um, their campuses a better place for, for generations to come. And so that was truly life-changing experience for me um, over the last two weeks. That's great. Well, thank you so much. Again, I, I appreciate your time and your wisdom. And um, it's a pretty big gift when we can get that kind of energy and motivation from students. I think too often we think of it as the other way around, but um, I, I'm glad that you have that because 
I may need to reach out to you for something else in the future. And I want you to have a full tank. So um, <laughs> thank you again, Dr. Smith. I really enjoyed our conversation. Today's Essay Today podcast is brought to you by SAXA, and we thank them for their support. Additionally, this show would not be possible without my producer, Jen Lowe, at the University of South Florida. Thank you for your support and collaboration, Jen. I appreciate you more than I can say. Um, as we wrap up, I did want to close with a quote. And I actually pulled this one. Um, I just, I thought it fit this episode really well. So the quote is, I came to understand the value of education, not just to enable me to make a good living, but to enable me to make a worthwhile life. And that quote is from Dr. Ruth Simmons. She's currently the president of Prairie A&M. She is formerly president of both Brown and Smith and is an alum of an HBCU. She's a, a Dillard graduate. So um, just to kind of bring things full circle. But along with that, my name is Michelle Botcher. It has been a pleasure to host this episode. And I hope you, Travis, and our listeners out there all have a beautiful day. Take care, everyone.